Jeff Borden was the original intern uh, here at this church, the first Jeff intern, uh, long before Jeff Brown. And uh, he's also uh, was uh, an early associate pastor before um, they headed off to Zimbabwe uh, back in about 1990 or 88. What's that? 93, 93. So Jeff, come up and bring us the word if you would. Let me, let me pray for you as you come up here. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this brother whom you've gifted and called uh, to open your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, uh, give us spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to, uh, to hear you and to respond. Uh, again, have your way with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. I want to bring you a special greeting from our family. <clears throat> Greetings from uh, my wife, Patty, and our children, and uh, Daniel, uh, Matthew, Melissa, and now, uh, well, our, it's, Melissa's our daughter-in-law, and then Lydia at home, and now uh, two grandchildren. So things have changed a little bit since we came in 1988, and uh, a lot more gray hair and balding and other things like that. But uh, greetings from our family, and um, <clears throat> we're just so appreciative of just the long-term uh, partnership, and uh, we're so grateful for uh, New Covenant partnering with us all these years, praying for us, and uh, it's a great encouragement to us, and uh, it's a delight to come back and visit. I wish all the family could be here, but they're now spread throughout with different things going on this week, and uh, so greetings from them. And uh, I really want to uh, give a word of thanks here, because uh, <clears throat> I really uh, want to give thanks to the, to the music team. Uh, worship team, the music team. Um, I just was really blessed by that. Um, and I'm not just thankful for the talent that God has given, but, but um, as I go around the many churches, I see more of all the behind-the-scenes commitment that uh, folks on the music team make. And uh, we're just so appreciative of that, uh, the time they put into that and uh, the coordination and coming early and being late, here late and so forth. So thank you so much uh, for that and uh, grateful to the leadership of this church and uh, it's good to be back and it's a delight. I also want to thank you for starting a missions conference on Sunday. That's kind of 180 out from anything I've ever experienced. Um, it usually finishes on Sunday, but starting on a Sunday really goes along very well with, with the message today from Revelation um, chapter 5. So if you'll turn to that, and uh, I'll tell you why this fits so well with starting on Sunday, because of the relationship between worship and missions. There is absolutely no dichotomy between worship and missions. Worship feeds missions, and missions fuels worship. Uh, you might know that I think the favorite book of many of us that was ever mit, uh, written on missions was uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he begins that with saying something like, missions exist where worship doesn't. And uh, three years ago, if I'm not mistaken, we looked at Psalm uh, 67. And that's the whole reason there for missions. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. Excuse me. 
And in the Psalms and in Revelation, missions is for worship. Missions is always God-centered. It's always theocentric. We reach out to people, yes, created in God's image, but that is the penultimate purpose of missions. Missions is the ultimate uh, purpose of missions. It's not people-centered. It's God-centered. That's an important distinction. Reaching people with the gospel is penultimate purpose to God's praise. And we'll see that very clearly uh, in this passage. All through scripture, uh, missions is for worship. And so thank you for beginning on Sunday. It, uh, it fits well. I am uh, still used to the New American Standard Version. Uh, so I want to get out your NS, uh, ESV Bible so I can read from that. And what I'd like to do this morning is something a little different. Um, I'd like to start out by just reading verses 1 through 7, the first half of the chapter. The chapter very, uh, breaks very nicely into uh, two seven-verse units, and we'd like to look at verses 1 through 7 first. And then for later, for verses 8 through 14, we, we would like you to be involved. We'd like to do that antiphonally, and I'll explain that when we, when we get to that, okay? So verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals, perfection. I saw a mighty angel, that is an archangel, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And then the next verse is, a, is, a, is John crying out, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. The sense of the Greek here is that he had a total meltdown. This is total meltdown, Cron Gibson. This is, uh, this is, this is the, as low as it gets. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Lord, we bow again. We pray that you would wonderfully bless our time in your word, our fellowship, our koinonia around the word of God. And we commit it to you and this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture here of John's passion for the lamb to come. John's passion for the seal. So let's look at this setting. First of all, what's the setting? The setting is God's throne, the throne room. 
That's the center of the universe. It's the command center where everything comes from. And John begins us there within the, in the throne room of God. And he's called up, come up here. I will show you what, what things must take place. <clears throat> That's the beginning of verse four, uh, chapter 4. And verses 4 and 5 go together. So he's in the throne room and, and, and 4. And then this continues in the throne room in chapter 5 with the one who sits on the throne. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of, of God-centered worship in his throne room. And then we have this appearance of a book. This, this has been a tough uh, word to interpret. Um, I have a, a, a few quotes on that. Uh, one great scholar says it represents God's eternal plan, his decree, which is all comprehensive, which would explain the seven. Another says it represents his covenant promise of both judgment and kingdom of salvation. There's some rich Old Testament background here as there is often through the book of Revelation. It's amazing how much of Revelation not only quotes but alludes to the Old Testament. In fact, that covers the vast majority of the book of Revelation. It's steeped in the Old Testament. For example, in Ezekiel 2, 8 through 11, you have a scroll of lament, the flying scroll of lament. That would, that would point to the idea that the book includes judgment. And, um, and then in Zechariah, sorry, in, in Ezekiel 2 is the scroll of lament, and in, in Zechariah 5, it's the flying scroll of judgment. One writer says of chapters 4 and 5, how do these two chapters fit together? One writer says, a single motif or theme binds together the twofold vision of chapters 4 and 5. The God of creation in chapter 4 is the God of redemption in chapter 5, who brings to pass his purpose through the crucified and risen Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So we have creation and redemption. The God who creates is the God who redeems. And then enter, entering into this scene is an angel, a strong angel, probably an archangel, maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel, and he comes in with this loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? Who can crack open this book? And it, the book is sealed tightly with seven seals. Of course, as you know, that's a picture of completeness. Seven is the number of completeness. So this book in, in its entirety has to either remain closed or the whole thing needs to be broken open. And the problem is, look at the uh, agony in verse 3, and which leads to John's agony in verse 4. The dilemma in verse 3, the problem. No one in all of creation, including the spirit world, is qualified. Let me take a little tangent there and give you one, one idea that's very helpful in when we interpret Scripture, a theological point. At Genesis 3, what fell? What fell at Genesis 3? Was it just Adam? Was it just Adam and Eve? No. It was the whole creation, right? The whole creation is cursed, right? Well, if that's true, if that's true, can redemption arise within a cursed creation? Obviously not. 
See, that's very important because any religion, any view that ties redemption to something strictly of this creation has to be wrong, right? Can salvation come from something cursed? Cursed and blessed in scripture is east and west. It's north and south. There's nothing better than being blessed by God. There's nothing worse than being cursed by God. And the whole of creation is here and it's under a curse. So what's the point? As, as, as you look around creation, where can redemption come from? Nowhere. So if it can't come from creation, where does it have to come from? It has to come from the creator, right? The creator has to step in to creation. And you see that, we see that in simple words in the Gospel of John. Born again. Uh, that idea of being born again means born from above, right? Salvation comes down from above. The manna came down for abo for, from above. I am the manna of heaven. I'm the bread of life. Where does the new Jerusalem come from? In Revelation 21 and 22, it comes from above, right? Peter says, this creation, the elements will melt with intense heat, the purification the new creation comes from above. James mentions all blessings come from above, from the Father of lights. Blessing cannot come from a cursed creation. Redemption cannot come from a cursed creation. The only way for creation to be renewed is for the creator to do it. Full stop. And that's really helpful because when you evaluate any kind of thinking, any kind of theology, if it violates the creator-creature distinction, we're in troubled waters. That's Romans 1, isn't it? What happened in Romans 1? They began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. There's your two categories. That will serve you well. That will serve you well. And that's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. Salvation comes from above. So the reason, John has good reason to worship because in the creation, there's no answer. And as I said, John breaks down. This, this phraseology here is real emphatic. John is a broken man. And then who comes to him? One of, the rule, one of the elders. I don't know if it was a ruling elder or a teaching elder, but one of the elders comes, one of the elders comes and what's he say? John, stop weeping. I can't help but think of Elijah. You know, Elijah's weeping and he's broken. He's been broken down because of Jezebel. And what's, what's the word to him? Uh, Elijah, there's still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Stop crying. Stop weeping. I have a remnant. I will save a remnant. And what you see through church history is one thing. All through church history, as bad as it gets, God always has a remnant. That's really revelation, isn't it? As, as revelation unfolds, things never look good. It just gets worse. The beast from the sea. The beast. Revelation is not a pretty picture until the end. And that's the point. 
no matter how dark it gets, God always has a remnant. God's plan is unfolding. What man means for evil, God can use and does use for good. Amen? That's the whole point of Revelation. That's the point of the Psalms. Um, Things don't look too good in the Psalms, do they? The persecution, the crying, the groaning, the weeping. How long, O Lord? That's life in a fallen world is not a pretty picture. The pretty picture is God is the steps into creation to redeem his creation. To redeem a remnant. And that's wonderful, wonderful good news, isn't it? Amen? God came to you. Uh, It just makes me want to weep with John. But let's look at this verse. Verse 5. Now, I want you to notice a distinction here. There's a big difference. John, no doubt, does this intentionally. There's a big difference between what John sees and what John hears. All right? These words are very important. For example, in verse 1, I saw. In verse 2, I saw. In verse 6, I saw. But then he also says words, right? The angel speaks, and someone speaks here. And what do they say? John, stop weeping. Why? Behold the the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He did not see the lion. This is critical. He heard about the lion. All right. And where's that come from? I have to keep mindful of the clock because Jeff told me to stop at one o'clock. So I want to be very (laughs) I want to be very sensitive to to uh, that's a good time for Sunday lunch. So I want to be very sensitive to that. So uh, uh, you just keep that in mind. And I told one of the elders, there's a trap door here. If I go over one, just hit the button and I'll, I'll be gone. <clears throat> but really, let's look, at, let's look at a little bit of background here. Um, what's, what's the background here? This goes way back again to the book of Genesis. Genesis 49. It's the line of Judah. Kingly blessing will come through the line of Judah, right? The kings came through Judah. And now speaking of the kings, what covenant comes to mind? 2 Samuel 7. Shall we just peek back at that a minute? 2 Samuel 7. Let's just take, take a peek at that. 12, I want to just look at the second, uh, in the second line of verse 12. Well, let's just start with verse 12a. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. Now that's good news for David, isn't it? Hey, David, when you're dead, I'm going to do something. You know, isn't that great? Jeff, wouldn't that be great? They said, boy, Jeff, if I could just get rid of you, I could really do something here. And so you're going to die tomorrow and then things are really going to take off. That's kind of the idea here. I will raise up for you. I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish not his not your kingdom. I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. Wait a minute, David, didn't I do that? No, you didn't. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom.
for a week or for 12 years, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is really, this is brought out in the gospels, isn't it? In Matthew and Luke, the fulfillment of this. And then the relationship. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Isn't that beautiful? And then it goes on to talk about uh, iniquity because all of the kings from the earth were what? They were all just like you and I, men with feet of clay, needy, fallen, depraved, dependent, totally on grace. But David, there's one coming who will, who will set up an eternal kingdom. And it won't be a kingdom that's limited to Israel. It won't be a kingdom that divides north and south. It'll be a global kingdom. And one of your descendants will be the king. And he will sit on the throne forever. And you'll be there, but you'll be looking at him. It's not you who will be on the throne. He will be on the throne, and you will join everyone else in praising him. From you will come blessing. Sounds like the covenant with Abraham, doesn't it? Genesis 12. In you, all the families of Israel will be blessed. That's how many people read it. That's not what God told Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? God has an international plan. And this is what we're going to see uh, a few verses down in this chapter. Um, there's also allusions here to, uh, to David, but I, I want to take you to uh, one, one passage in, in the book of Matthew. Can we just turn to Matthew 22? Because this is just a beautiful thought. Matthew 22, verses, um, well, let's just start at verse 42. <clears throat> the Pharisees are there, they're gathered together. And, you know, the Pharisees are always trying to trap Jesus, so he lays, he lays the ultimate trap for them. What do you think, guys? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, oh, they, they, knew their, they knew their Old Testament theology. The son of David, of course. Then how does David, in the power of the Spirit, how does David call him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's quoted in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.13 and other places. And then he asked this question, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Isn't that beautiful? David knows that one coming through him will be his Lord. Mary knew that. When Mary in the Magnificat, what did she say? He will bring, one coming from me will bring salvation. He's my redeemer. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, both David and Mary recognize, uh, as, as well as uh, Abraham, one coming from man will nonetheless be coming from God. He will be the divine redeemer. A beautiful thought. Christ, and this is the climax here, Christ is the only one who can break that seal. Well, let's look at the, par the paradox now of verse 6. Verse 6 is one of the greatest paradoxes in Scripture. 
And again, if you watch the I saw, I heard, that's where this comes into play. So he was told about a lion, right? Hey, David, got a great news for you. The lion of the, of the tribe of Judah is here. I want you to come and take a look. So, verse, verse 6. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures. What did he see? A lamb. Wait a minute. This is the wrong picture. You talked about a lion. And you're coming up with a lamb? A lamb standing as if slain, having, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. There's a lot of Old Testament symbolism again here as we expect. Horn, horn was often used as a symbol of power and of royalty. So here's a lamb that's a defenseless creature, and this lamb is, has, has symbols of great power and great royalty. So that pictures what? That pictures his omnipotence. Then the seven eyes, that speaks of he can see everything. He knows everything. He's everywhere. Omniscience, omnipresent. So you've got the God of the universe, the creator, right here as a lamb. Isn't that amazing? So you're looking for a lion and you see a lamb. What kind of paradox is that? What kind of king is that? And this gets right to the heart of the gospel, isn't it? When you're talking to other people about the gospel, I like to, I like to think of it this way. Can I tell you about my king? Can I tell you about my king? He's not like any other king in the universe. Uh, what do kings do? They conquer. They defeat. They kill, they take over, they extend their territory, they rule, they ride on horses, they sit on thrones. But let me tell you about my king. How did my king conquer? How does my king conquer the world? How does my king uh, make for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that's coming up? See, my king is not only the Davidic king, but my king is also the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, they say Isaiah in Africa, British pronunciation. Uh, my king conquers by being the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the suffering servant. And there's the paradox, isn't it? You see this in the book, in the book of Hebrews, in my favorite. You see in chapter one of Hebrews, Jesus is presented right off the bat, the son, all right, uh, you have the old revelation and then you have the new revelation in the son. And then it says he's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the majesty. He's the king. But then it says an unusual word at the end of verse three. It says, after he made purification of sins, he sat down. Isn't that beautiful? Let me just, if I had a chair, uh, let's pretend I'm down there. It says, after he made purifications for sins, he sat down. See, and it's really beautiful because Hebrews, we know that, that if you've done any Bible study whatsoever, you know that book is about Christ as priest, about his offering, but that's not where it begins. It doesn't begin with Christ as priest. It begins with Christ as creator. 
his divinity is, is expressed all through chapter 1. Because he not only says that, after he made purifications of sins, he sat down. There's three seatings in the book, in chapter 1 of Hebrews. The next one is verse 8. And the Father, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, because the Father is speaking to the Son, starting in verse 5. He's comparing him to the angels. And the Father looks at the Son and says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. Isn't that the most majestic verse you could think of? The answer is yes. <laughs> the, you see, it, this is unique because Scripture is all from the Lord, but how many places in Scripture do you have a conversation of God speaking to God? Let us make man in our image. Um, you have Psalm 2 where the Father says, I have appointed my king. I have installed my king upon Zion. That God is the heavenly king, but he installs his son as the earthly king, as the Davidic king, right? So we came, verse, verse 3, verse 8 of Hebrews, and then he says to him in verse 13, the father still, still speaking to the son, and he says, uh, excuse me, he says, uh, you're, you're seated at my, uh, be seated at my right hand until I make what? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God will establish that by overcoming his enemies. But then you come into chapter 2, and what happens? He switches to Psalm 8, and he begins to talk about the first Adam. And he presents Christ as the second Adam. Just let me turn to that quickly. He turns to, he, he presents now Adam, um, Christ is the second Adam. And he, get, he brings a lot of mileage out of this beautiful thought. He, he begins to talk about Jesus at the end of verse 8 and verse 9. But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, he's then crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting from him, for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect their author of their salvation through suffering. And I love this part, verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also. You see the emphatic words there? He could have just said he did. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Isn't that beautiful? In Hebrews 1, he's the king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Hebrews 2, he's the lamb. Amen? But our Savior started as the king. And notice that in the incarnation there, he's made lower for a little while. Philippians 1, uh, Philippians 2, he humbled himself. He emptied himself to the point of death on a cross. We have this wonderful symbolic pair here. The lion is the lamb, and the lamb is the lion. 
How can two such uh, opposite things be found in one person? That's how. The lion portrays his exalted eternal dominion as the king of kings and the lord of lords, and the lamb portrays his humbling uh, to be born of Mary, of the virgin, to walk this earth, to suffer uh, both actively and passively for us, that he would redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Amen? Isn't that the good news that we have in this book of Revelation, in fact, in the whole gospel? So, <clears throat> let me just uh, come back to that. I'm feeling a little emotional as I, as I uh, get into this. I just think this is, this is just, this lion and lamb thing is one of my favorites. I do want to take a minute to read a C.S. Lewis quote. How many C.S. Lewis fans here? Um, C.S. Lewis captured this wonderfully. At the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Edmund asked a lamb, who served them a meal. Think of Jesus at washing the feet. He asked the lamb, is there a way to Aslan, Aslan's country from this world? The lamb, there is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white appearance flushed into a tawny, tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself towering above them and scattering light from his name. Isn't that beautiful? He saw the, the lamb turn into the lion. I just love that. And uh, that takes us through uh, verse, the first part of the text. So we only have an hour and 15 minutes to do the rest. What I want to do for the second part, yes, I'm not just halfway through. I'm much more than that. But what I want to do for the, for the second part is I want us to actually do what the text does, and that's to worship. And what I ask uh, Pastor Jeff's permission of this morning, and uh, they're helping us on the screen. I'd like you to turn your Bibles. Jeff told me to do this earlier, and I didn't. Turn your, in your pew Bible to uh, page 1030, if you will, or your ESV, if you have the ESV. And... Uh, we're also going to project this up on the screen. And what I'd like to suggest, I'll switch to the ESV so that, uh, so that I'm with you. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I'm so used to my NASB. Can I do that? Because I've, I've got it laid out much better. Um, what I'd like to suggest to the finish, rather than me preaching through that till 12, uh, we'll, we'll, I'd like to do this. In Scripture, you have a lot of antiphonal readings. In fact, um, the Psalms, I believe, were often read antiphonally. The leader would say something, and you have a lot of the individual pronouns, the eyes, and then all of a sudden it switches to us, and then it's back to I. And you say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Can't you get your pronouns right? That's probably the king is our leader, and I believe most of those, of course, that's fulfilled in Christ. But as the earthly king, David, or others, they're leading, and then there's an antiphonal reply, and it's in the context of worship. And I'd like to suggest that we just do that um, to close our time together with verses 8 through 14, because now it's all about missions. But it's all about missions in the context of being all about 
uh, people all about the nations, right? And we'll read that you have redeemed with your blood a people. Notice it's one people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, which is quoted here, a holy nation. The church is a holy set-apart nation unto the Lord. It's an international nation, a people for God's own possession. Isn't that wonderful? God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. God is fulfilling his promise to David. You will never lack a king to sit on the throne. In fact, that throne will be eternal. Isn't that wonderful? And we're seeing here the fulfillment of that. And what's our response? Our response is first, one, to worship, right? That's our response to the Father. Our response to one another is encouragement. This builds us up in our faith. And our response to those who, who don't know Christ is to tell them about the lion and the lamb. And let me tell you about my king, right? That's what we can do. So we reach up in worship. We reach beside one another in encouragement. And we reach out to a, to a lost world that desperately needs to hear about the lamb and the lion. Amen? So let's, uh, let's start then with verses, uh, verse 8. It's not all doxology. There's, by the way, there's three doxologies here. If verses 9 and 10. Um, You'll read those, and I'll, <clears throat> I'll start out with 8, and you'll read 9 and 10, and then I'll read 11, and you'll read 12 together, and Tiffany, that's our worship, and then I'll read the first half of 13, you'll read the second half of 13, that's uh, doxology number 3, and then I'll close with verse 14, amen? Shall we do that? And uh, would you prefer to do the antiphonal reading standing? Uh, I think I'd, I, I kind of come from a tradition, I like standing when we're reading the word. Is that okay? So I'll read and then I'd like you to, to read together the, uh, the ESV. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. The worship service begins. Having each one a harp. By the way, those harp, that's associated with the Psalms. They would have the harp, as you see, through the Psalms. So the picture is here is a continuation of the Psalms, which ultimately are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. And 
and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, And the four living creatures <clears throat> kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You may be seated. The amen there, as you know, is the stamp of approval. That's the agreement, the corporate agreement, that this is true. Amen. Let me uh, close this in a, in a word of prayer. I'm thinking of uh, Philippians 2. Uh, to quote from that as we close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself. You emptied yourself as our king who became the lamb. And Lord, as the, as the word tells us, you are highly exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father and the power of the Spirit. Amen.